I've shared with you before how at our staff meetings on a Monday, we'll often read through the Bible passage that we're looking at on the coming Sunday. And so on Monday just gone, after I finished reading this passage out, Hayden Smith, our youth worker, turned to me and said, well, good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, maybe this is your first time in church for a while. Maybe this is your first time in church ever. And you're thinking to yourself, what is that all about? Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time and you're thinking to yourself, what is that all about? It's quite a story, isn't it? I bet that you didn't hear it in Sunday school if you went to Sunday school. And it begs the question, why is this story in the Bible? Why is this story recorded for us in the book of Acts? Now, if you've been around for the last little while, you know we've been in a sermon series working our way through the book of Acts, the story of the early church, the story of what happened next after Jesus' resurrection and return to heaven. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're Luke, the author of Acts. I wonder if you would be tempted to leave this story out, to leave it on the cutting room floor, after all, it's not exactly the best advertisement for the church. Come to church where you might be struck dead. Come to church where lying kills. I mean, why would Luke choose to include this story? What are we supposed to take from it? What is it supposed to teach us? Because the reality is, it is supposed to teach us something. Do you remember what we read, uh, what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture. This would even include Acts 5. So rather than rip this page out of our Bible, rather than avoid it, rather than gloss over it, we need to look closely and we need to think deeply about this story to see what it might have to say to us. Now, the truth is, this story, like last week, is actually a pivotal moment in the book of Acts. Last week, if you remember, in chapter 4, we saw the first instance of opposition from outside the church. Peter and John were interrogated and arrested and threatened by the religious leaders. This week, we see the first instance of sin from within the church. This married couple deliberately deceived the church community and it has devastating consequences. And so this story is, is undoubtedly confronting, but I think it's also helpful and useful. I think it teaches us a number of important lessons. Firstly, I think it shows us that there is no such thing as a perfect church. Even the early church had issues. We often like to idealize the early church as if it was some kind of perfect community, signs and wonders, thousands being added. But even the early church had its issues. And this is partly what Luke is showing us in Acts chapter 5. He's not just sweeping their issues under the rug, he's giving us a warts and all picture of the church. And it's a picture that is both surprising and shocking. In fact, here in Acts chapter 5, Satan is mentioned for the first time in the book of Acts. Now, where is he found? Is he out among the pagans and the politicians and the palaces? No, he's among the church. 
And what's he doing in the church? Is he inciting violence and encouraging orgies? No. He's encouraging deception and he's inciting hypocrisy. He's making people feel like they need to look better than they really are. They need to pretend. They need to deceive. And I wonder if this is not still one of his main strategies to make us feel like we need to hide, to get us to pretend, to put a mask on. I'm convinced that this is one of his main strategies still because he knows that this is what will destroy the church. I mean, one of the greatest dangers for the church, it's not just opposition and persecution from those outside the church. It's actually a lack of integrity and reality from those within the church. It's a lack of honesty from church members. It's deception, duplicity, hypocrisy. This is more likely to bring a church down than opposition from outside. And this is why the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, why it was dealt with so decisively. Because this kind of deception is devastating. It harms the witness of the church and it hinders the cause of Christ. And sadly, we've seen a number of examples of this in recent years. We've seen a number of examples of prominent Christian leaders who it's been revealed that they've been leading a double life. And I'm sure I don't have to use names. I'm sure you can think of a few examples. But of course, this is not just an issue out there. It's not just an issue with, with everybody else. I mean, maybe you're squirming in your seat right now. And if you are squirming in your seat, you're not alone. I read this week, if God dealt with all hypocrites in the church, the same way he dealt with this couple in Acts chapter 5, our churches would become morgues. And it's true. All Christians are hypocritical at some level. We all believe in and talk about a way of life that we will not attain to on this side of eternity. I mean, if Jesus is the standard, and he is, he's the one, he's the image that we are being transformed into. If Jesus is the standard, then we should all admit that we all fall woefully short. And sometimes in terrible ways. Because the fact is, when you become a believer, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, God doesn't just snap his fingers and change you and transform you instantly into the image of Jesus. Yes, you receive God's spirit. Yes, you come under God's word. Yes, you belong to God's people. But this journey of following Jesus and becoming like Jesus, it is a lifelong journey. And it's a journey that does not reach its final destination until either you die or Jesus returns. And this is why I've said to you before, Christianity is not perfection, but a new direction. Christianity is not perfection, but a new direction. It is a direction that takes you towards Jesus. It is a direction that will deliver you into the hands of Jesus. It is a direction that one day will lead you to being glorified by God. But it's a direction that will have bumps and detours and setbacks along the way. And this is why I think this story here in Acts chapter 5, it's helpful for us as Christians in an uncomfortable sort of way. 
because it forces us to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves some hard questions that we might not naturally or generally ask. For example, do I genuinely grieve my sin? Do I genuinely want to grow? Am I being honest with God? Am I being real with God? Or am I playing games with God? Am I merely playing a part? Do I just go through religious routines, but I really have no reality with God? These are important questions that we should periodically ask ourselves. And this story helps us to do that. But I also think this story is helpful if you're not a Christian. Because maybe you've rejected Christianity, not because of Christ, but because of Christians. Maybe you've known some Christians and they've treated you poorly. They've spoken to you harshly. Maybe you've seen in the news prominent Christians who have done things that seem to be out of step with the Christian faith. And it's put you off Jesus and it's put you off the church. And if that's your experience, I'm very sorry. But I think that this story will show you how seriously God takes the example of his people in the world. God takes some pretty drastic measures here to root out deception and hypocrisy from among his people. And I would say to you, if you've rejected Christianity because of Christians, well, you shouldn't expect perfection. Not even the Bible expects perfection from Christians. You should expect there to be a genuine desire for Christians to live consistently with what we say we believe. And you should expect there to be genuine repentance when we fail to live consistently with what we say we believe. This is what God wants from his people as well. But I would also say to you that just because someone who claims to be a Christian does something bad, it doesn't mean that Christianity itself is bad. You know, John Gray is a secular philosopher and he has written this. He said, it isn't just religion that can go bad. Any human activity has the potential for evil. I mean, you don't just dismiss science because some scientists have produced mass weapons of destruction. You shouldn't just dismiss Christianity because some Christians can and do evil things. You know, John Dixon, the Australian author, he said that to do this, to dismiss, to reject, to, to set aside Christianity just because of the evil things Christians have done, the bad behavior by Christians, it would be a little bit like dismissing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, one of the greatest pieces of classical music, because you heard it performed by a bunch of primary school kids. I mean, the performance by the school kids, it doesn't give you the full picture. It doesn't tell you everything you need to know about Beethoven and the brilliance of his music. And you see, those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, we are a little bit like the primary school kids attempting to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. We are going to play bum notes. We are going to play out of tune. But you shouldn't judge the composer or the music based solely on our performance. Ultimately, you should look to the composer. Ultimately, you should look to Christ. And Christ says to you, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Christ says the reason he has come into the world is not to call the righteous, but sinners. He is called the friend of sinners. Because Jesus opens his arms wide, not to the perfect, but to the repentant. Not to the strong, but to the weak. Not to those who think they have it all together but to those who know that they don't. And he gives us his grace and he gives us his spirit and he begins to grow and change and transform us. And this is why the church is not a private club for perfect people. It's not a showroom for the squeaky clean. It's a sanctuary for sinners. It's a hospital where the broken are restored, where the hurting are healed, where the dirty are cleansed, where the guilty are given grace, where the lost are found, where the dead are made alive because Christ is here and Christ is among us. I like the way Simon Manchester puts it, a retired minister from Sydney. He says, the non-Christian thinks that the local church is a bunch of people who think they are pretty good, coming to hear a preacher tell them to be good. And they think to themselves, well, I'm already pretty good, and I don't need to be told to be good. But the real Christian knows that, in fact, we are a bunch of people who are awake to our sinfulness, very grateful for Jesus, and hoping the preacher will tell us again that our hope is Jesus. That's the church. That's what we're called to be and to do. And this is all wonderfully true. But the question now becomes, doesn't it? Well, if this is true, if the church is a hospital for the broken, if the church is a place where where sinners can be saved, then why wasn't it the case for Ananias and Sapphira? Why were they dealt with so decisively? This is the question I'd like us to look at as we now just turn our attention back to this story. And to do this, I want to ask and answer three quick questions of my own. Number one, what did Ananias and Sapphira do? Number two, why were they dealt with so decisively? And then number three, what can we learn from this? So let's begin with number one, what did Ananias and Sapphira do? Now on the surface, not a great deal. In fact, if you were to just read it quickly, it would even look like a good thing. We're told they sold a piece of property, they took the money from the sale, they kept them some for themselves, and then they gave the rest to the church. Seems like a pretty good thing to do, doesn't it? But then before you know it, Peter is accusing Ananias, saying that he's filled by Satan, he's lied to the Holy Spirit, and then Ananias is struck dead, closely followed by his wife, Sapphira. I mean, it's quite a turn of events. It is quite shocking. And so what is going on? Well, to understand what's happening here, we need to read it in the context of the end of what takes place at chapter four. We have to look at what we see there because it gives us the context for Ananias and Sapphira. And what we see at the end of chapter four is a compelling glimpse of the early Christian community. 
We're told there, or we see there, that they were a united community. They're together. All the believers were one in heart and mind. They were a witnessing community. The apostles were continuing to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. But also, perhaps more than anything, what we see there at the end of chapter 4 is that they were a generous community. I mean, verse 32, they shared everything they had. Verse 34, there was no needy persons among them. They had a loose grip on their possessions, but they had a tight grip on one another. They took care of one another. In fact, they even, were told, from time to time, sold land or houses and then used the money from the sale to give to those in need. It's amazing generosity, isn't it? Now, it wasn't everyone that was doing this, but we are introduced to a gentleman that did do this. There in verses 36 and 37. His name was Joseph, but he's known as Barnabas. Now, Barnabas will show up a number of times in the book of Acts, and he's almost always mentioned for good reasons. He's an encourager. I mean, his name literally means, or his nickname means, son of encouragement. He's helpful. He's generous. You can imagine that Barnabas would have been one of those people in a church community that everybody knows and everybody appreciates. He would have been looked up to. He would have been a great blessing, a good example. And it's against this backdrop that we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. And now you can imagine they saw the way that other people looked up to Barnabas, the praise that Barnabas received, the respect that he was given. And it seems that they wanted this for themselves. They wanted to receive what Barnabas received, and so they decided to do what Barnabas did. But they weren't willing to pay the same price that Barnabas paid. They sold a piece of land. They give the proceeds to the church, but they only give part of the proceeds. They tell the apostles, well, we only received this much, when in reality, they received this much, a larger amount. Now, it wasn't the amount that was the problem. Peter points that out in verse 4. He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposable disposal? No, no one forced you to do this. No one coerced you to do this. It was your land. It was your money. You, you can give as little or as much as you want. No one's asking you to do this. The problem's not the amount. The problem is that they lied about it. Verse 4, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. They wanted everyone to think they were more generous than they really were. They wanted to be seen to be giving the whole amount when in reality they were not. They wanted to be seen to be something they weren't, to do something they didn't do. In other words, they wanted a Christian reputation without Christian reality. They're kind of like the opposite of Barnabas. Barnabas, we're told, filled with the Spirit. He gives away this money to meet the needs of others. Ananias and Sapphira are filled by Satan and they give away this money to meet their own needs, to boost their own ego, to secure their own status and their own reputation. And so the root of their sin wasn't necessarily greed or lying, though that's part of it, it was hypocrisy. It was wanting to be seen to be something they were not. Now, let me be very clear. Hypocrisy is not being sinful. That's normal. Hypocrisy is being deliberately deceptive. It's being intentionally misleading. 
And that shouldn't be normal, at least among the people of God. And, and that leads us to our second question, which is why did, were they dealt with so decisively? Why did God strike them dead? It's a tough question, I'll be honest. But I think we need to remember the timing of when this take pl- took place. This was right at the beginning of the church, right as the, the Christian movement was getting going. And what have we been told that the church has been doing up to this point mainly? They've been speaking the word of God boldly. They've been sharing the truth about Jesus. But here now in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they're not using their words to speak the truth about Jesus, but to speak a lie, to speak deceit. They're playing fast and loose with the truth. And if the very first followers of Jesus were only truthful when it suited them, how could their witness to Jesus' resurrection, how could their preaching of the gospel ever be believed? There's so much on the line here. And this is partly why God acts so decisively to preserve the witness and the integrity of his people. And this leads us to our third and final point. We've seen what Ananias and Sapphira did. We've we've touched on the surface of why God acted so decisively. And now we want to know, well, what can we learn from this? What should we learn from this? And, that, you know, there's a number of lessons we could point out, but I want to highlight just one for us, because I think it's the most pertinent one. And it's this, hypocrisy is deadly. Hypocrisy is deadly. To pretend, to fake it, to play games with God intentionally, deceptively, it's deadly. Now, of course, Unfortunately, it's also dead easy to do. It has been ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and what was their impulsive response? To hide from God. See, our guilt and our shame, it impulsively makes us want to hide from God, to hide from others. And this is why the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the storyline of the Bible is such good news, because it invites us to come out of hiding. It invites us to stop playing games. It invites us to stop pretending. Because here's what the message of the Bible, the gospel does to us simultaneously. It exposes us and it covers us. I mean, the gospel exposes us to be sinful. We were so sinful that Christ, the Son of God, had to die for us. No one should be shocked or surprised to learn that you are sinful and you wrestle with ongoing sin. The gospel tells us that about ourselves. Then here's what the gospel also does. It exposes us and it covers us. Because when we place our faith in Jesus, we are covered by his righteousness, by his perfect record. We receive a safe and a secure standing before God. We read this just a few moments ago in our service in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become slightly better versions of ourselves, marginally improved, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And what this means is that we can peel off the mask and we can begin to get honest. 
because we have been exposed and we have been covered. And we can begin to walk in honest relationship with God and honest relationship with one another. This is what the Bible calls walking in the light. It's so freeing. It's what God calls us to. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And what happens in the light? And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, Christians during the East African revival in the 1920s, the 1930s, they described this as living without a ceiling and without walls. They wanted there to be nothing to come between them and God, and they wanted nothing to come between them and one another. No ceiling, no walls. And so here's the question, is there a ceiling in your relationship with God? Are you playing games with God rather than being honest with God? Here's a a little bit of truth. He already knows. Are, Are there walls in your relationship with others? Maybe today is the day to open up to God and to open up to a trusted friend. Because when we step into the light, here's what you do not find. Rejection and condemnation. Instead, when we step into the light, we find the finished work of Christ to cover us and we find the endless power of the Holy Spirit to help us. We find grace for our failings and we find strength for tomorrow. What on earth would we be waiting for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't deserve this amazing grace, and yet you so freely give it to us. And Lord, for those of us who have perhaps been hiding for too long, For those of us who have perhaps been playing games, putting on a mask, pretending. Lord, we want to step out from the place of shame and guilt and condemnation. And we want to step into the light where there is healing and forgiveness and hope. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be simple. But it's going to be worth it. And so, Lord, help us right now by the power of your Spirit to to do what we need to do. And as your Word presses on us, help us to respond, to not walk out from this place and to just shrug it off, but to step into a renewed obedience, a renewed submission, and a renewed experience of your grace and your love. And so we just, right now in this moment, we open ourselves up to you, God, and we ask that you might do a work in and through us more than we could ask, think, or imagine. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. After the service, if you'd like to talk with someone, if you'd like to pray with someone, we have the prayer corner that's available just over on this side of the building, and we would love to do that with you. But right now, let me invite you to stand.
as we close with this blessing from 2 Peter chapter 3. May you grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.